Well, this morning, I have the privilege and honor to introduce to you a dear and blessed friend of mine. Uh, his name is Dr. Chris Newkirk. He is the lead pastor of Whitten Avenue Bible Church in Phoenix. He's an adjunct professor at Phoenix Seminary, and I can't stand up here long enough and share all the wonderful things that he has done, God has done through him, and what an encouragement he has been to me personally. He is a great encourager. He loves our Lord. He has a wonderful family and a wonderful church family. Uh, and so I'm just so blessed to be you know, standing here this morning uh, to introduce him to you as he gets ready to read the word of God to us with you and preach, preach, preach to you. Uh, he's come up from Phoenix this morning, so uh, keep in mind that um, he was only pulled over twice on the way to get here on time. Uh, no, but seriously, we're happy to have him here. He's had a busy, crazy week uh, with some family things, illnesses, and so on. Uh, his wonderful wife, Andrea, and their two boys are at home, unable to make it this morning, but please welcome Dr. Chris Newkirk, my dear brother. Thank you, brother. He said I got two tickets, but I actually went to two wrong places before I came here. I went to a different Canyon Bible Church, and then I went to your offices, apparently. So that did happen. But I asked him to have you be seated for just a moment before uh, we begin, because I wanted to just uh, thank you so much for a couple things. I wanted to say thank you to the elders uh, for extending this invitation to me and allowing me to come and preach here with you. I know that this is a church that loves and takes seriously the word. So the stewardship of the pulpit is um, something that is very serious, uh, both to me and to the elders. And so I want to say thank you very much for uh, welcoming me and inviting me. Uh, your reputation as a church family uh, precedes you. So I am smack dab in the, in the middle of, of central Phoenix, and uh, I am constantly hearing good things about what the Lord is doing in you um, and through you up here in Prescott. And so I praise God for that. I've been uh, pretty close friends with Andrew for a number of years, here, years now, and I just consider him such a dear brother, a humble brother, an incredibly intelligent uh, man who takes seriously the Word of God. You are very, very blessed to have Andrew, as I'm sure that you already know. And um, as John said, uh, you are uh, so, well, you didn't say this, but as you already know, uh, John Filkey is awesome. Um, and I've got to know multiple other people in your church because Andrew's come down and preached at my church. Um, and I've actually met multiple of your people at Simeon Trust preaching workshops, and so it's a joy to be with you this morning. I also just wanted to mention before we read the word that I'm grateful that you are here in the valley doing faithful gospel work because uh, my brother and sister and their family um, live here in Prescott. He actually went to a rehab that's like a couple blocks away from here, and they lived for a couple of years, like a mile away from here, and they're still here in the valley, and their family does not know or trust the Lord. And, um, and so uh, I am yet another example of the mission that is before you, uh, that we have uh, lost family and friends and neighbors here in the valley, and that part of the reason why you are here is to be good witnesses uh, to people like my brother, whom I asked five times to come this morning and would never darken the doors. But you are missionaries as you are sent throughout your lives, and I pray that the Lord may use one of you uh, to break through and be able to share Christ with my brother. So thank you for your work here, and thank you for having me. I would ask you now, even though I, we just had you seated, but I'd ask you now, if you would, as is your custom, stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in First Thessalonians. And we will read chapter 2, uh, 1 through 16. I would ask you to open up your Bibles since it's a longer passage. We'll be hopping around a little bit this morning, um, so it would be helpful if you could read it now with me, but also uh, follow along with me, but then also keep it open throughout the sermon. So God's Word says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, but not as to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember us, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of, the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God is also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to you the Gentiles, that, might, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is God's word. May he bless the reading of his word. Please pray with me for just a moment more as you, before you're seated. God, we pray that you would uh, bless just the pure and simple reading of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive your word that is preached, all of us, myself included, and that we might be hearers of your word and not, we might be doers of your word and not merely hearers. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So I'll start with a simple question. Have you ever had a mentor uh, a, a mentor being someone who has had like a profound impact on your life. They've taught you, they've invested in you, they've encouraged you, they've been intentional with you, they've blazed the trail for you, if you will. Have you ever had somebody mentor you and impact you in such a way that you even begin to kind of look like them, talk like them? I'm not saying you're you know, you try to be them per se, but they've had such a profound impact on you that you begin to resemble them and their gospel ministry, their lives, how they speak, how they glorify the Lord. I pray that each one of you have had somebody like that, even in the past or in your present. I, by God's grace, have had a number of people like that in my life. I think of my brother, Chuck, who's a pastor down in the valley as well. I think of my mom and my dad. My dad was a pastor for 45 years. Um, and I also think of uh, a man named Mark Dever who uh, mentored me for a number of years. And I just praise God that he's allowed me to have faithful men and women who have blazed a trail for me and shown me um, a pattern of life and doctrine that is worthy of imitation. The book of Hebrews tells us, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You know, whether we like it or not, whether we recognize it or not, 
who we are is in large part a good deal related to the people that we follow and the people that have influenced us. Now, what Paul's going to tell us within our passage is that these people that we follow, these teachers that come into our lives, these people that mentor us, they're ultimately either godly or ungodly. They will ultimately ever uh, either lead us to the great mentor of our souls or they will lead us away from Christ. They will be people who lead us to the truth, towards holiness, or toward licentiousness. They will either have godly motives for their investment in you, or they will have ungodly motives in their investment of you. Now, if we were preaching consecutive exposition, you would already have seen these themes pop up in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, Paul and his fellow ministers, they praise God for the amazing growth and godliness that these new believers in Thessalonica have shown. They receive the word, they've been shaped and formed, and they are living powerful, passionate, sacrificial, God-centered lives. Verse 6 says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And as a result of that, the flip side of that is incredible. By verse 8, we read that these new believers had become known throughout all the region, and it says, sounding forth the word of the Lord, other churches began to imitate them, even though they were a young church in the faith. Well, today, Paul picks back up that theme of imitation, and he presents himself and his ministry team as a model for ministry both for the leaders amongst you, but also for the entire congregation. And so I would call you to remembrance that sweet passage I already read from Hebrews 7, that we are to remember our leaders. And in this context, that would be Paul and his ministry team, those who spoke the word of God to us. And it says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So again, Paul is setting himself out and his teammates out as a model of a way of life and of doctrine for not only the church in Thessalonica, but for us as well here today. So again, as you keep your Bibles open, uh, we will read and and walk through the majority of it. Some parts I'm going to need to summarize just due to time, but let's begin in verse 1. Verse 1 again says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So let's pause there. You yourselves know, brothers. Paul says that these Thessalonian believers had experienced these things firsthand that the ministry of Paul and his companions was not a waste in the region of Thessalonica. Although Paul and his companions had been severely mistreated in Philippi, although gravely insulted, hauled by brute force before the magistrates, derided by the Jews, stripped of clothing, flogged, jailed, all of this can be recounted in, can be read in Acts chapter 16. Paul says, even despite all of that, even after we've just been driven out and treated in that sort of way, we came in amongst you, not weakly or with timidity, not licking our wounds, feeling sorry for ourselves, not looking over our shoulders in fear, but rather we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. And in God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that bold, sacrificial uh, perseverance in gospel ministry showed itself, proved itself to not be a waste of time. For if you want to look over in chapter 1, verse 6, we'll see something repeated in chapter 2, but in 1, verse 6, it says, you, church, received the word in much affliction 
in the affliction that this church was experiencing, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So again, in God's grace, God brought a harvest in the hearts as a result of Paul's perseverance in the gospel. Now, I'll just pause there and say, as a minister of the gospel, I find this so encouraging, and I pray that you do as well, regardless of if you hold any kind of leadership role within this church. For how could Paul and his companions experience all these things in Philippi, and yet when they come in to now the, the, the region of the Thessalonians, they come in and minister in this sort of way? How could they experience such brokenness, both of body and of heart and of spirit, and yet proclaim the gospel and minister in such a profound way, even in the very midst of their suffering, and be used by God in the midst of such seasons. Paul tells us this in verse 2. He says, how did this happen? How did this good fruit come about? Verse 2 says, we had boldness in what? In our God to do what? To declare the gospel of God to you. If you see the repetition there, it is the of God. Now, I, I would encourage you to just let your eyes glance down. I, ho- I hope it stood out just as we read it, but just glance down to the rest of those 16 verses and what you'll see time and time and time again. It's actually over nine times in 16 verses. We see this theme of because of God. We did this, we ministered in this way, or God brought about such and such of a result. Because of God, he proclaimed the gospel of God. He was merely a steward. God was the one he sought to please, the one who tested his heart and his motives. His life and ministry were from beginning to end God-centered. Now, a lot of us like to think that our lives and our ministry and our churches are God-centered, But frankly, when I read what Paul has experienced, I still come back to the the question of of why or of how. How how could he be so God-centered when it would seem like everything in his life, the experiences within his life, would make him doubt that God was worthy, make him doubt that God maybe was in control when he's constantly flogged, when he's constantly persecuted, when he's constantly driven out of towns. And so I I think we do well to just ask the question of why was he so God-centered? Why was he so confident in God that he would continue to minister in spite of all the sufferings that he had experienced? So I want to encourage you, again, to flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now look, jump down to verse 9, if you will. For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned, from, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or later on in chapter 5, you don't necessarily have to turn there unless you'd like to. Chapter 5, verse 9 is yet another occurrence of why he has such confidence. Chapter 5, verse 9 says this. Ooh, I like your turning there. I'll pause. Verse 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath. What has he done? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So friends, I would just say to you, why is Paul so God-centered? It's because he had tasted and received the miraculous gospel of God in his own life. The Lord had rescued him, not just from indifference to God, 
but from hostility to God. God. Jesus had done such a remarkable work in his heart that he says, uh, if God has done this in me, then most certainly God has the power to do anything in you. That I'm confident, not in my ability, not in my ministry, not in my preaching, but I'm confident because I've experienced the dramatic effects that the gospel of God can have on someone's life. I am living proof. I am the chief of sinners, and I have experienced the miraculous work of God in my life. Therefore, I preach to please God, not man. I'm confident in God, not myself. In the midst of my suffering and hardship, I do not lose hope, but rather I persevere in my ministry because I have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ stood in the place of sinners like you and like me, Christian, He has taken our sins upon himself. He has died for our sins. He is raised to new life to conquer the grave, to conquer sin and death. And now any and all who place their faith in Christ have new life, whether we are awake or asleep. We might live with him. He has been changed by the gospel. And what that creates is not only a, quote, gospel centrality, but a God-centeredness in all of his life. I pray that if you have not trusted in Christ, that this would be a day in which you trust him because he is your only hope in life and death. And you are separated from him and under his wrath rightly because of your sin. But you need not remain there. Trust in this, in this Christ who the text says delivers us from the wrath to come. Trust in the Christ who it says we are chosen and loved by God because of the work of Christ. Trust in him and experience this great salvation. And you too will become God-centered like our brother Paul within this text. Now, let's continue on. The, 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 the verses 3 through 12, verses 3 through 12, they present various facets of how uh, Paul and his apostolic team served in an exemplary manner within this church and this, this region. And he does this, again, to, to provide a pattern for their leaders and for the congregation as a whole to continue on because this church was brand new, it was young, And they were already making a difference in their community. And so he says, here is the way that you should minister as well as you continue to grow in your faith. Now he does this by presenting a series of, you could say, antithetical statements. He says, we didn't do this, but instead we did do this. And thus we have a very clear pattern of ministry. And if you're a pastor or minister here, a leader of A leader here, I would say you have a special obligation to listen and to imitate what you hear and read within this text. Look at the text with me, and I'm going to just kind of run through these quickly. I'm going to summarize some of them. But in verses 3 through 12, I want you to see these, these antithetical statements. So Paul says, we did not preach or counsel or lead or exhort from error, from mixed motives, from hidden agendas. We didn't come into town trying to please people or draw crowds. We didn't come in town trying to get the most Twitter followers so as to gain a following or avoid further suffering, although that would have been so easy to do, would it not? He says, the message translation says, we never use words to butter you up. And God knows we never use words as a smokescreen to take advantage of you. We never threw our weight around as apostles. We never presented ourselves as ultra-Christians who are better than you. 
We weren't aloof or inattentive. We weren't patronizing or condescending. We weren't lazy or greedy freeloaders. Instead, we were actually the exact opposite of those things. We were uh, the opposite of undoubtedly the visiting kind of philosophical orders, street preachers who would come in as they were along this major Roman road. They would come in and, and Paul says, don't look at them. Don't listen to the naysayers, but instead think about the pattern of our ministry amongst you. He says, we were tested by God, both in our methods and motives, and God is our witness that we were faithful among you. He says, we came in with love and tenderness and boldness. Why? Because it was the more effective church growth strategy? No. We did this because we longed to, quote, please God in everything we did and said. He says, although we've been treated shamefully, we came in boldness and in power. We didn't come in skirting issues, skipping over passages that might get a little ruffling of the feathers. We came with boldness and with power to not do a bait and switch with the gospel, but to boldly proclaim to you there is one way to be made right with the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. We're not ashamed. We came in boldness, in humility, and in power, and proclaimed this. We worked our fingers to the bone up half the night, moonlighting, so that we, we wouldn't be a burden to you while we proclaimed God's message to you. We were gentle and discreet and courteous amongst you. I think that's such a powerful image. In those verses, how he gives us this contrasting image of a false minister, uh, of, of false gospel proclaimers, and how he himself and his ministry team came in and served amongst them. I, I, I particularly find it beautiful. It's kind of one of my uh, main ministry passages, uh, this, this entire text, but particularly the two metaphors that he presents in verse 7 and then the contrasting one in verse 11. In verse 7, he says, we minister to you, quote, like a nursing mother. In verse 11, he says, we minister to you like a father with his children. I really, I, I really love that. I mean, because some of us uh, are more prone to act motherly as would be typically characteristic of a mother. Some of us are, are we, we call it boldness, but we're kind of brash. And we tend to be more, you know, stereotypically a father figure in our ministries, but Paul shows us this amazing pattern within this text that true ministry, true gospel proclamation from those who have been radically changed by the gospel is like a nursing mother and is like a father amongst the people. So verse 7 says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, we were gentle among you in our ministry. Although bold in our proclamation, although seeking to single-mindedly please God, we were gentle and nurturing in our ministry to you. Some of us need to hear that. Because we only got one tool in our tool chest. And that tool is a sledgehammer. And anything we see needs to come down the hammer. We've got some beloved brothers uh, and sisters in our church that are like, man, yeah, like, you could take John 3.16, you take Psalm 23, and you could feel so guilty at the end of it. You could feel terrible about yourself. Some of us need to hear tenderness and compassion and mercy as you are ministering to one another, as you're sharing Christ with one another, as you are discipling one another. 
Friends, like some of you especially need to hear that faithful ministry involves a tenderness, a using of the right tools to minister to the people in the right ways. I love how he says that like a mother with her beloved children, we gave you the gospel. The greatest gift that we could ever give you, right? I can give you food, I can give you medicine, and all those things are fantastic, but if I don't give you the gospel, you can be well and fed and go into hell. We gave you the gospel, but then we didn't just stop at teaching and preaching, did we? It says, we gave you our own selves. Some of your translations may say, we gave you our own lives. But that's the image that we are are seeing. We didn't just give you a a once a week, once every other week coffee time for one hour as we sought to mentor you. We, we, We gave you our hearts. We gave you our time. We made ourselves available to you. We, like in our mentorship and modeling to you, we opened ourselves up fully and we opened up our hearts because you had become very dear to us, because we desired to please God. Therefore, we didn't just remain reserved and say, well, I'm a Christian. Praise God for that. I'm just going to kind of do me, and I'm going to continue to learn a whole bunch of stuff. But instead, these ministry modelers for us gave up their lives for the sake of these young believers in the faith like a nursing mother, is gentle with her children. I love how it says, we have become affectionately desirous of you, of your salvation, of your perseverance, of your blessing, of your growth. Kenyan Bible, I would say, friends, this is what your elders are seeking to embody. This is what your elders, as through every conversation that I've had with them or with Andrew concerning them, this is what your elders are striving to be and do for you. I pray that you would receive this kind of care from them, that you would thank God for men who minister in this way, that you would encourage them, receive them, and be blessed by this sort of ministry. And then, again, like the book of Hebrews tells us, Remember, consider, and imitate. Remember, consider, and imitate. And Paul doesn't stop there with the mother analogy, right? He continues on, verse 11, it says, For you know how, like a father with his children, and look at how he's, the the image, but then he explains what he's saying. Mother, nurture, father, we exhorted, each one of you, and we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, the God who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. So like a mother, like a father, I think that's just beautiful. He says we should be like a father with his own children. We've sought to lead you and instruct you and exhort you and encourage you. We've, we've called you to step up. We've called you to say, don't, don't be a slacker. You got more than this. Pursue God. Pursue holiness. Give your life away. Like a father would would coach, I've got two young boys, 11 and 9, and like I believe in them. And I, I believe that, I believe in what they are and who they are and I love them, but I also believe in what they can become. And I call them to a higher standard. When, I, when, it, when, when mom walks in and she's got all this, these groceries, I'm like, hey, did you just see this? She shouldn't be carrying any of these. How many moms do you have? You got one. Go get the groceries. Fathers instruct and encourage and admonish their children to rise to the occasion. 
Paul says we did this because God had miraculously chose you, chosen you. He has saved you. And thus you are to live a life worthy of the great grace that's been poured out on you. He has shown you amazing grace. Now you don't earn even an ounce of more grace by obeying him. And you don't pay him back by following and obeying. But anyone who has been truly revolutionized and flipped upside down by the gospel, their lives should and frankly must look progressively over time different and more holy and more obedient. Why? Because that's what the gospel does. Because that's what loving God looks like. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling because you've experienced so much undeserved grace in your life. You have the joy of responding in obedience now. So walk in such a way. God has called you to himself. He's transferred you from your citizenship from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and glory. And so, like a, like a mother and like a father, we've sought to minister to you in grace and truth and patience and selflessness, motivated by a love for God and a deep love and commitment to you. Now, there is, is uh, in, in my heart, in my life, as I've meditated on this in 20-some-odd years of pastoral ministry, there's so many cool applications that, that we could consider from this text. Um, If you will, I I want to briefly just speak real directly to the elders and those who maybe aspire to be elders within this church, uh, that God may be calling into whatever your form of kind of leadership is in this church. And then I'll come and I'll speak to the broader body. But don't just, uh, if you're just in the broader body, don't tune out because this is what you should be looking for. And then encouraging uh, as you see the elders pursuing these things in their ministry. So, elders, brothers, imitate Paul and his ministry team and how and why they ministered to the the Thessalonians. Consider their ministry and their motivations Because these are the types of ministers that God will use and God will bless. Specifically, we must never preach or lead in order to please people. Friends, oftentimes we preach, we lead, we make decisions because we are afraid of our own flocks. May that never be amongst you. You must love them and care about them, but have your greatest and grandest desire, responsibility be to please your God to whom you will give an account for how you shepherded on that final day. Our singular passion must be to please our God. And also, brothers, We must also lead out of a deep love and affection for the people of the Lord that he has called us to serve. So it's not just like, I'm I'm pleasing God, therefore I'm just going to steamroll anybody. Well, like, maybe you didn't read all the rest of the stuff that I just talked about. But no, Paul tells us in this text that people are not tools to build a platform They are not obstacles to getting ministry done. They are not cogs in the wheel of ministry or faceless, soulless numbers. They are beloved by God, blood-bought saints that are of infinite value to God, and therefore they should be to you as well. You, uh, I trust, do, but you should have an affectionate desire to see them flourish in the Lord. One kind of final exhortation to myself as a pastor and to all of you brothers and, and sisters who are in main leadership, we must have a deep commitment to not only a pattern of ministry, a precision of theology, but to tending to your own souls and motives for ministry.
Are you serving out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Are you serving in order to gain a following, following to be esteemed or respected by others or to be seen as a leader? Why do you serve and lead? Why do you teach the way that you teach? Why do you feel so much anxiety before you teach your Sunday school class? Why do you counsel? Why, church, do you try to excel in the ministry that you've been entrusted with? It must be, friends, it must be arising from a deep love for God and an unrelenting desire to see God lifted high and exalted amongst the nations. These uh, particular exhortations that I have for the leaders amongst us and the aspiring leaders, uh, friends, will never be perfect. I, I think we're always a mixed bag of motives. Uh, I think it's Calvin that said, like, uh, I feel like I have to repent of my repentance. Like, I, I repent of my sins, and then after the fact, I realize how far short in my prayers that even my repentance fell. So I'm going to repent of my repentance. We're never going to be perfect. But may the Lord increasingly progressively build this into us as leaders. May the Lord continually bless your church family by graciously providing more and more leaders who want to minister in this way. May you constantly be blessed as a church family with these types of ministers. But now, church, the, the book of Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders, verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they, keep, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And listen to this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no ad advantage to you. So if your elders are seeking to minister to the, in this way to you, and they are imperfect, but this is their pursuit, and this is their heart, then I would say, what benefit is it to you if you make their lives miserable by complaining about all sorts of nonsense? Do you think that encourages them to be a nursing mother and a loving father? Well, of course not. Now, they should continue to do so. They're responsible before God to do so. But friends, you are called and commanded to let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Not with picking apart. Now, I asked Andrew if I could preach this passage, but it was not, Andrew didn't ask me to preach this passage. Okay? So there's, I, I don't know anything that would come behind this. But I would simply say, are you the squeaky wheel that's constantly picking. Because friends, if you know the ministry motivation and the calling of an elder, the calling of your church leaders is to be like a nursing mother, like a, like a humble, exhorting father, and your leaders are seeking to please God above all else, but also be people who uh, minister to you, to give their lives for you, and friends, I would just say, give them the benefit of the doubt every time. Consider the fact that they're already giving you their lives and respond as such. But it's interesting in this text that though Paul is laying out a, a quality of life and ministry amongst the Thessalonians, that the closest application would obviously be other ministers, other missionaries, other leaders. Like, obviously, that's the closest connection. It's actually, I, I find it really interesting that Paul isn't actually writing to the, le to the elders in Thessalonica. Who is he writing to within this letter? Well, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, together, with, together here with Silas and Timothy, we send greetings to who? To the church. The church, that is the people of God, who are brought together, committed to one another, committed to the ordinances together. The church at Thessalonica, Christians 
assembled by God the Father and by the Master Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to Christians. And frankly, Paul is writing to Christians who are young in their faith. And he is calling on them to follow his imitation, uh, to imitate his pattern of life and ministry as well. It's not just like, okay, the elders do this, we all get a pass, and we attend events that are put on. No, no, no. Like, this is like the same calling that is set before you. Paul is calling on the church to minister to one another in these same ways. So I would tell you that if you are a member of this church, then being a member of this church is not signing a piece of paper and being like, oh, I got my like stamp of approval. No, being a member of this church is actually your commitment to this body and the body's commitment to you to embody and live out these ministry convictions within your church family. That you are called to be these sorts of brothers and sisters to one another. So, so member, read this, read this text again and then go back and say, is this the type of life that I am living as a member of Canyon Bible Church? Because it should be. And again, you will never be perfect, just like the leaders will never be perfect. But this is your striving point. This is the pattern that we are to remember, consider, and imitate. We have a special obligation as we move throughout this text to be an example uh, to other churches and other Christians, to other people who might come here and visit amongst you. We have a special obligation to do more than just be kind and friendly, but to be ministers of God's grace to them, as Paul is encouraging us to do. We have a special obligation to bless and seek the good of, within our text, if you see, it says all the believers throughout Macedonia. We have a special obligation to not just care about building an empire here that's called Canyon Bible Church. One church, 12 locations, one pastor being videoed everywhere. You just stay at home, watch it on live stream. Not, like, we're not called to build empires. We're called to bless other churches and see them flourish. And friends, that's one of the reasons why I'm here today. Because I am one of the other pastors alongside Andrew, who's a part of the Grove Church Planning Network with you. And our heart's desire, the reason why we care about church planning isn't because that's like the cool thing to do. The cool thing to do would be to save all the money and all the people and just try to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But friends, like we're called to be a blessing by planting churches who are healthy, who will replicate and make other healthy churches, who make other healthy churches. Because the best way to reach a, reach a community with the gospel is by planting and building and strengthening healthy churches that are in a local community. So friends, one of the reasons why Andrew even asked me to come is because he wants you to have another face alongside just a name, Grove Network. We are partnered. Whitten Avenue Bible Church has been blessed by you, but we're also partners with you in saying we care more than just for our church. We care for God's glory throughout Prescott, throughout Arizona, throughout the valley, and that's why we've joined together with you to care about more than, better than, empire building. And that's a joy. There's so much for us to take here uh, to apply in our hearts and lives, but I'll just kind of leave it as that for leaders and for members of this flock. If you go back to your text, you'll see that there's a shift, uh, a pretty clear shift in my mind from verses 1 through 12 to the final section, verses 13 through 16. A lot of people break it as... Uh, break it at 12. Uh, the problem with that in my mind is that there's a continuation of the theme of imitation. And I think he, Paul is kind of telling us the context in which these believers are to imitate his ministry instead of succumbing to the pressures and the persecutions that they themselves are facing. 
just as Paul was and did. So verse 13 says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, that you accepted it not as the word of God, but as what it really is, the word, not, not as the word of men, but as a, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I love that. It, it it harkens back to verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1 again, the Word of God doing the work of God in the people of God. But he adds something that's really cool here. He says that in God's grace, through the working of the Holy Spirit, the Word took root in their hearts because they understood it to be what? The Word of God. It was not the Word of Paul. It was not the Word of men. It was what it really was, which is the Word of God. What a powerful reminder for us. One that uh, oftentimes people in churches like ours just simply take for granted. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer, and let me make this explicit because I know this of Canyon Bible well. We believe that, that this book, the Word of God, is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. It is breathed out by God. It's inspired by him. So we don't believe this is just a collection of ancient fables or really motivational things that you could take to heart. No, actually, we believe that like you must listen and come under this word because it is the Word of God. But you also have the joy of coming under this Word because we have a God who has spoken, revealed Himself, revealed His will. Have you ever, have you thought about that lately, church? That you have a God who's not silent? He never was. He never will be. You have a God who doesn't just ask you to like run around in kind of like ignorance as to what he desires or what he expects of you or who he is or what his character is, but he has given you the very word of God that reveals God himself. And what an amazing treasure that is. What a blessing that is to receive. That yeah, you, you should read the word of God. That is totally true. It's a discipline that must be cultivated. But frankly, even more than that, that you get to read the Word of God, which is God speaking to you, that's crazy. That is amazing. We have to constantly remember this. And that's that Paul encourages them and says, like, you received it because the Holy Spirit showed you that this is not the word of Paul, but this is the very word of God. So pastors, preach the word. Don't skip any part of it. Teachers all across the church, teach the word of God. Use the word in your parenting, in your evangelism, in your ministries. It is the very word of God. You have not been given the liberty or authority to do anything else other than preach the word of God and trust that since it's the word of God, it will do the work of God in the people of God. He continues in verse 14 and says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So not only are they imitators of Paul and his ministry companions, now actually like we see that they're imitators of the churches of God in Judea. And it's interesting that he says in chapter 1 that they became good models to be emulated and, and, and uh, followed and imitated throughout their region as well. Do you see this pattern of cooperation and mutual blessing that churches and individuals ought to have with one another? I think that's really cool. I think it's really, really, really dangerous when we care so much about this one church that we become so myopic and then we don't have partnerships with other churches. Things like this push us out of that. But you became, he says, imitators, although you were excelling in so many ways, you became imitators of God in Christ Jesus. 
of the churches that are in Judea. For you suffered the, th- the same things from your own countrymen that they did for the Jew- from the Jews. The Jews who, both, who, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And they disple- displease God and oppose all mankind. How do they do that? Well, in part, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, what are they doing? By hindering us, they're filling up the measure of their sins. God's wrath has come upon them at last. So church, not only should you become imitators of Paul and of his ministry companions, but you should find faithful other churches in this region, in the valley, in broader Arizona, across the country, across the world. And you should say, praise God, I want to be more like them. They excel in X, Y, Z. Like, I want us to excel in that. Let's pray towards that end. It's it's not a, hey, the church down the street, they're amazing at VBS, and all these visitors come, so you know what we need to do? We need to do a better VBS so that then people will come to us and not to them. This is not some competition. Between good, faithful, gospel-preaching churches, you should seek to see where people flourish and say, man, I want to learn from that. I want God to grow us in that. That's a good and godly and humble thing to become imitators of churches and individuals that the Lord is using in powerful ways. He says, uh, these these." Judean churches, they offer a type of model for their ministries that would be especially applicable to these Christians that are in Thessalonica because they suffered at the hands of the Jews, the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus, not to mention the prophet. They drove out Paul and his ministry companions multiple times. He says, unlike us who seek to please the Lord through our faith in life, you see that text? They displease the Lord the contrast and they do this chiefly by rejecting the messiah but then secondarily they don't just reject the messiah they oppose and they hurt all mankind by seeking to hinder paul and his apostles from preaching christ to the gentiles thus paul says they are filling up the measure of their sins we've got this sort of language lots of place in places in scripture that they're coming to the end of the lord's patience and soon the wrath of god will come upon them basically he's saying it's as good as done it's a done deal now all that may seem severe some of you may be particularly sensitive and say this is anti-semitic to but we've got to consider who's actually writing this that it like literally it's paul I mean, Paul was the Jew among Jews. He, he was the golden boy, the green beret. If anyone could, uh, could promote themselves amongst that sphere, it was him. And he was the one that persecuted. He was the one that killed. And yet he is saying here that within this text, my friends, the, these persecutors... Now, if you persist in your persecution of God and his church and his people, you are filling up the measure of your sins. So again, I would just say to you, if you're not a believer, friend, you are filling up the measure of your sins. And God has not granted you unlimited patience. Friend, turn to him today in repentance. Don't assume you have more days or more patience. But in God... Trust in Christ today and repent of your sins, and he will save you. Consider the contrast that we've seen in these texts. In chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Jesus delivers us, those who are trusting in Christ, and Christ alone for salvation, from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. However, chapter 2, verse 16, but God's wrath has come upon those who oppose the gospel and the ministers of Jesus Christ. Non-Christian, hear this warning and take it to heart. 
Do not persist. Instead, today, hear the word of God and repent and trust in him. Christian, take heart in this word and rest in the gracious gift of salvation that you've received. Trust that the God, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who has freed you from condemnation and wrath, cherish him, rejoice in the gospel once again, and then, friend, recognize that in this text, Paul is presenting his life and ministry in Thessalonica, principally in order to shape their behavior and ministry. So may we, as receivers of this word today, imitate the Lord by learning from Paul, by learning from the fact that he imitated Christ and called others, therefore, to imitate him. May we take this to heart and imitate Paul and his ministry for the glory of God and for the good of the people of Prescott and the Prescott Valley.